Welcome, folks. Start our event on COVID, neoliberalism, and the Arab Spring with Professor Gilbert Ashkar. Perhaps it's appropriate to begin introducing today's topic, our panelists, and actually the hosting organization. Today, uh, we are coming to you from Jerusalem, uh, the Kenyan Institute, which is the Jerusalem-based branch of the Council for British Research in the Levant. Uh, CBRL, as our acronym reads, is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct and support research in the humanities and social sciences uh, in, across the Levant region. We're part of a larger uh, grouping of uh, international, British international research institutes known as the BIRI uh, and have sp uh, were provided with sponsorship from the British Academy. Um, but we also uh, are a membership and charitable organization which enables us to conduct further research in addition to our core costs. We have over 100 years of experience in the region uh, and today have uh, branches both in London, uh, Amman and in Jerusalem from where this broadcast is taking place. In normal times, we, we host a, a regular program of lectures in the UK as well as our local institutes. Let me introduce my esteemed guest, who is Professor Gilbert Ashkar. Uh, he is coming today to, from London, he, uh, where he lives and is a teacher at the School for Oriental and African Studies, uh, where he has been a professor there since 2007, but before which he also was a teacher in Beirut, in Paris, and in Berlin. His many books published in upwards of 15 languages include The Clash of Barbarism, The Making of the New World Order, that's subtitled The Making of the New World Order, uh, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy, also co-authored with Naum Chomsky, uh, uh, a well-received volume on the Arabs and the Holocaust, uh, the Arab-Israeli War of Narratives, which came out in 2010 from Metropolitan Books, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, perhaps most relevant for this discussion, two books discussing what are known as, uh, what are informally referred to as the Arab Spring. The first was the, the People Want, a Radical Exploration of the Arab Uprisings, which came in 2013, together with a follow-up uh, volume known as Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Arab Upri Uprisings, which came uh, out in 2016, uh, giving follow-up analysis to the evolution of the revolutionary upheavals across, across the region. So please uh, join me in thanking Professor Ashkar for his uh, presence today. We certainly have uh, a lot of things going on in the Middle East and a lot of things to probe your mind about today. Uh, Gilbert, I will start this discussion with Professor Ashkar for about 35 to 40 minutes and then take those questions and hopefully have a, a fruitful discussion from, from there. So uh, allow me to use that long introduction to say hello. Thank you for joining us, Gilbert from Jerusalem. It's truly amazing to be able to speak to you. Thank you, so thank, you thank you. Thank you, Stas. Thank you for organizing this. And thank you for CDRL, thank you for uh, Sarah who's organizing it technically. Yes, and, bless. Uh, pleasure to be with you all. Thank you. So uh, before I'd like to s try and start this discussion in a way that uh, can help our, our viewers be sort of uh, carried along with, with some of the analysis that you've provided in the past, as well as what you see is going on now. And to do that effectively, I think we have, you know, a set of loaded terminology going on in our titles here. So uh, to help uh, 
break that down for us. Can you start by giving us a, a bit of an understanding of what you mean when you say, when we discuss the term neoliberalism as a term? I generally tend to feel that this terminology is sort of a large catchphrase that is used to sort of, um, uh, you know, say many, many things, but is too unspecific to actually mean anything. So for the purposes of this discussion, can you please try and give us a little bit of your understanding of what you mean by neoliberalism, both as a theoretical model as well as something practical? Yeah, well, you, you, you're right to, to, to start with that because indeed it's become a catchphrase and, uh, and uh, we tend to assume that everybody uh, knows what we're speaking about when you use the term, although it might mean different things to different people. People may, may understand it uh, differently. But, uh, um, uh, well, if I had to give a definition of it, I would start by saying it is an ideology which uh, believes uh, that uh, uh, the private sector should be uh, uh, the driving force and the engine of the economy with an extremely minimal uh, reduction of the role of the state. I mean, basically the principle of that is, is that the state should interfere only where uh, nothing, the, the, where the private sector contemplates, you know, basically. It's the reverse of, of some views. So the, in, in that perspective, there are no public services or whatever, as long as the private sector can, uh, can provide them, they should be provided by the private sector and not by the state, however public they are. Um, and of course, this, this kind of, uh, of ideology um, entails, th therefore, uh, uh, privatization of, uh, of uh, public services or whatever kind of activities that are run by the state. Uh, it uh, entails uh, uh, deregulation, uh, that is, uh, the, the principle of uh, free market and the free enterprise taken to the, 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 the extreme. Um, and uh, um, in a variant of it, it's, which is the one that is uh, applied in most of the world, except in the United States of America, which has the privilege of, uh, of telling the rest of the world, do what I say, don't do like uh, what I, I mean like uh, I do. Uh, you have austerity, which means uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the state budget should be reduced to the, the, the minimum and should uh, be uh, uh, brought back to uh, equilibrium. And it's a, it's a, there's an abhorrence of, of the idea of deficits and debts and all that. So that's what, what you had. And of course, there's no I mean, coincidence that um, the, the key leverage for the global expansion of this neoliberal paradigm in the 80s, uh, this global paradigm that was uh, pioneered by uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as, as rulers and a, a bunch of economic theoreticians, of course, it's also an economic school, but those who were at the helm were were uh, driving this for, uh, pushing for this were Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan essentially. Um, uh, the, the leverage to, to expand that to the, the, the global south in particular has been the debt. 
the debt issue, the debt problem that had accumulated in the 70s uh, with uh, all sorts of, of reasons, one of them being oil prices that were shut up in the, in the 70s. And, uh, and that was a key leverage in forcing what was called the Washington cons Consensus, uh, which included the so-called adjustment, uh, structural adjustment programs, forcing uh, countries to, to massively reduce uh, their state expenditure and therefore at the expense of, uh, of social uh, expenditure, health expenditure and the rest, um, uh, and, uh, and opening their borders. So the, the end of uh, protectionism or attempts at you know, uh, fostering the development of national industries, but uh, just the principle of the free market, which got embodied in the WTO, the World Trade Organization. So that's what we, we, we call uh, neoliberalism, especially when applied to the global south, which is uh, our main focus of interest in this uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that uh, explanation. It's, it's very helpful to have that established first. Uh, if we move on to the second concept in our title, which is... The uh, by, by the way, you are you yourself are specialists of the problem so <laughs> please if you want to add anything to what I, I said in this definition you, you yeah you should go ahead I think I think you did a very good job of that I would say I mean uh, part of my question had to do with the difference with trying to get you to articulate the difference between the theoretical and utopian models of neoliberalism versus the actual lived ones because these are going to be actual aspects that we begin to see in how they respond to the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I don't know if you want to say anything there, but I mean, basically that is a good segue. If you allow me to segue, no, I mean, to, go ahead. The, the, COVID, the COVID crisis just, uh, I mean, some people are uh, going through wishful thinking and believing that uh, it is bringing neoliberalism to an end, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, uh, there is a, some ground for such belief, which is the fact that all states uh, have expanded hugely uh, their uh, economic intervention, their intervention in the economy by injecting uh, trillions of dollars, if you take it globally, it's absolutely huge. Uh, what's going on, and therefore also accumulating a huge debt. Mm -hmm. But uh, the issue is that uh, uh, I think uh, it would be very optimistic to believe that that in itself would mean an end of neoliberalism. They, they see it just as uh, emergency measures that they have to take. And actually, uh, I think that uh, it is much more likely that uh, uh, they would say that due to this huge accumulation of debt, we need more austerity and more of those neoliberal measures that they have been implementing uh, over, uh, over the, the, the last few decades. Uh, that's uh, what, what is uh, actually more, more, more likely to, to happen. Uh, that is uh, another aspect of it is, uh, uh, I doubt that they would say, uh, well, let us uh, uh, raise uh, the uh, taxation on, on, on the rich. Hmm? 
uh, so that uh, we we reimburse this, this debt and we keep uh, 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 injecting funds in the economy, which will be needed for for quite uh, quite a long a long while to come. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the, the balance, the social balance of forces is such that uh, since we have governments completely dominated by financial finance capital and, uh, and the very rich, and in a world in which the social inequalities have, have deepened tremendously to the point that it has become a, a best-selling theme for books like Thomas uh, Piketty and other, some other books, uh, uh, so th their inclination will, will rather be to, to let the, the, the people pay, to let the working class pay, to uh, cut salaries, to uh, you know, freeze uh, benefits and all that. that. That will be more their inclination than, than, than uh, uh, massively increasing uh, taxes for the uh, uh, upper levels. And uh, the, the argument will be, I mean, you know, supply, supply side economics. Uh, we shouldn't uh, um, frighten uh, money out of, of, of business. We should, you know, in order to keep money in business, we, we should have low uh, or very moderate rates of taxation. And in saying that, they would be, uh, I mean, completely uh, um, ignoring very deliberately because they know that. Uh, that uh, the, the the most intensive period of uh, growth, economic growth, uh, in uh, in Western economies, uh, was at the time when you had peak uh, taxation rates. Uh, in the 60s, uh, taxation rates were were I mean much higher than what what they are now after decades of neoliberal reversal. You know, and in the 60s you had much more impressive. Uh, uh, rates of economic growth and the rest than what you have now. And economies which were much healthier, actually, in the, the kind of development that they had, which was not like those financial bubbles and the rest that we have been seeing over the, the last decades. So that's, that's why I'm saying, I mean, uh, uh, it is indeed wishful thinking to believe that uh, neoliberalism was just uh, due to some economic logics uh, vanish. No, not at all. Um, I wrote a little piece on that uh, a few weeks ago, but just to, to explain that uh, economic paradigms uh, are the result of social balances of forces. They are the result of the class balance, of the, the, the balance of class forces. They are not the result of some, you know, intellectual uh, progresses or whatever. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's not like uh, scientific revolutions and the paradigm shift in sciences, which, which are the results of advances in knowledge. Uh, when it comes to uh, the economy, uh, the, the shifts of paradigms reflects the actual balance of social forces. And that's what would need to be changed if there is to be any way out of the, the neoliberal hegemony of, uh, of the last decades. Sure, but maybe I could challenge you there. Indeed, I think that the, the balance of social forces and the political uh, orientation and, and the battle of wills and power is certainly going to be decisive. But at the same time, we have two instances, one in 2007-8 financial crisis, and today with the COVID crisis, we have very obvious interventions by the top levels of government to, to, 
to intervene in markets. And, and even though COVID is not a market-derived uh, crisis, it's very obvious that the markets themselves are not able to solve these two crises. Is it possible or are we witnessing any divisions within the actual political or economic centers of power that are determining ideology slash policy that they are forced to rethink their neoliberalism, not simply one being a factor of the balance of social forces versus those who will govern in them? I don't see that uh, coming, you know, and again, it's not, uh, it has to reflect the, the real economic forces, the, 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 the kind of capitalism that you have. There hasn't been a shift in the kind of capitalism that we have. Uh, and there hasn't been a shift in the balance of social forces between capital and labor. So without one of those shifts, uh, you can't envisage a, a shift the, of the economic paradigm. So whatever they are doing, as they did in, yeah, well, you're right to point to what happened after 2007, 2008, I mean, uh, during the Great uh, Recession, as it's called, uh, even though it is much less than what we are seeing now. But uh, at, at that time, you know, you had a huge lot of comments on that. And uh, I mentioned in the, 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 the piece that, that uh, I referred to, which I published a few weeks ago, that uh, Newsweek came out at that point, that was in 2009, with we are all socialists now. You know, and, you know, when, when, you, when you look at that, uh, you, can, yeah, you smile like, like you're doing to me. That's exactly the reaction which, uh, which uh, is expected and normal uh, because, yeah, that was so uh, naive. And in the same way, but I mean, no one is saying today that people have learned the lesson. So you don't have those covers saying we are all socialists now. Uh, you, don't, you don't find uh, them a, a, any longer. And basically uh, what they are doing now, they see as exceptional measures facing an exceptional situation. That doesn't mean a, a shift in the paradigm. Yeah? Uh, that means a temporary uh, derogation, a temporary uh, uh, deviation from, from the rule, which is forced on them. Of course, they have no other choice. Otherwise, it would be a, a general economic collapse with social chaos, absolute social chaos. So they, they, they fear that. So they're, they're not crazy, I mean, in the sense that they are dogmatic. Neo, the neoliberalism is very dogmatic, uh, but uh, the limits to that dogmatism are the interests of capitalism. And so today, it's a matter of, of, uh, of providing for this interest. And that's uh, why they are doing what, uh, what they are doing. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it's not, uh, you know, again, it's not a change of the rules. It's just a temporary uh, deviation from, from, from the rule. And the, the, the goal re remaining, the, the, the and not the health of the people, the health of the economy. And that's why, I mean, uh, one thing, the only thing that you can take for granted is that there will be a massive increase in health expenditure in the years to come compared to what we were having. That is, neoliberalism was systematically eroding health expenditure hmm? through various mechanisms, but if you take uh, even rich countries like uh, Britain, for instance, uh, you, you, this erosion 
has been very, very sharp. Uh, now, it's, it's obvious that this is over, that uh, already they are injecting funds in the health system. And uh, after, when, when, even when all this is, is over, when you have a vaccine or whatever, they will carry on uh, with a high level of expenditure. But that won't be because they care for the people. It will be because they, they fear the repetition of the crisis, the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, their big problem was more the economic crisis than the health crisis. Hence what you had in, in this country, in the, the United Kingdom, a government which was explaining to you that, okay, there is a price to pay in, in human lives and all that in order to acquire uh, herd immunity and not to disrupt the economy. And you see the far right all over the world from Trump, Bolsonaro and all that is saying the economy is more important. Hmm? That's the, 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 the far right of neoliberalism. You know? They put it bluntly, the economy is more important. Profit come before life. That's the, the, the core principle of these people. Well, thank you for establishing both, both uh, a set of understandings around neoliberalism and how COVID has begun to impact that, as well as the illusions or not around what it will mean for the uh, sustainability of these economic paradigms. With that said, uh, I'd like to begin to transition into the third uh, dimension of this talk, which has to do with the Arab Spring, which, uh, if everyone noticed, has uh, inverted commas around it. Now, before we begin to blend together COVID and neoliberalism with the Arab Spring, I, I, you are known as uh, an intellectual who has written extensively on the political, economic, and developmental challenges that exist across the Middle East and North Africa. I'd like to give you an opportunity to explain to our audience, uh, insofar as this is obviously a very large region with a lot of complicated historical, economic, political, economic problems, what uh, is some of your own understanding of because it didn't the crisis of what is happening across the middle east and north africa didn't start with the covid it, it started well before but certainly we saw uh, major upheavals around 20 the end of 2010 2011 known as the arab spring so uh, uh, firstly why the inverted commas around arab spring and can you give us a little bit of a sense of uh, what you see as the main drivers behind this sort of cluster of problems that have led to this massive uh, revolutionary upheaval, which has lasted uh, to this point uh, upwards of 10 years, although the future of it we do not know. Mm, right. Um, well, uh, I mean, uh, Arab Spring, uh, um, why, why are there inverted commas? I, I mean, actually, I'm not sure I put those inverted commas. I did, so I would not right. remember. Uh, but uh, um, it's it just, it, it's because it's a kind of label uh, which is not necessarily very clear uh, whether you're speaking about uh, just the first time it was used, which was 2011, or are we speaking of, of the whole set of uprisings up to those of last year, 2019. Uh, that's why there's uh, some confusion on that. Uh, when the term was first used in 2011, um, uh, I was very reluctant to use it because of the illusions that were uh, encapsulated in, this, in that formula. The illusion that 
it would be, uh, you know, uh, relatively brief in time, short in time, uh, smooth, silmiya, silmiya, you know, peaceful, and something resembling uh, the Eastern European uh, uh, changes of uh, of uh, 1989 uh, to, to, to the early 90s. Uh, and that was a huge illusion. And I warned against these, this kind of illusion, uh, to which I counterpoised the, 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 the concept of, uh, of uh, a long-term revolutionary process. That indeed what, what started in, uh, in 2011 or December 2010 in Tunisia, if you want to be very accurate, it's basically 2011, um, uh, was, was much more than a spring. Hmm? It was the beginning of a long-term revolutionary process that will carry on for very long time, for many years to come. Actually, I would always say many years to come and even decades. And, and we are already close to the end of the first decade. Um, so uh, why was I saying that from the, from the beginning? It is because of my understanding of the explosion was not a matter just of, uh, of uh, sudden uh, uh, longing for democracy you know, and freedom, as it was portrayed in the global media. One more of those Eastern European kind of, uh, of, of changes. Uh, no, it was actually much, uh, uh, much deeper than that. It was the political expression of a deeply rooted social economic crisis, which uh, resulted from, uh, from decades of uh, very slow uh, growth and sometimes even through some years negative when compared to the demographic uh, growth. Um, and uh, with uh, one major symptom out of that being the fact that this part of the world held the record in youth unemployment, the highest rates of youth unemployment in the world for a very long time, before 2011. And, uh, and so you understand that this is a key factor in the explosion. And this has built up, actually, uh, in some way, uh, there, there probably was uh, less oppression, political oppression uh, in 2010 than at the previous, uh, a moment of, of, of the, the last few decades. So that, that wasn't the, the uh, that wasn't the, the, where the, the site of accumulation, the site of accumulation was, was social economic, uh, the, the accumulation of, of crisis, of anger, of uh, roots of anger leading to the explosion in 2011. And hence, when you understand this, you understand that uh, uh, this explosion, uh, in itself, actually, not only it won't solve the crisis, the social economic crisis, it, it can only worsen it because the conditions created by the upheaval themselves are going to worsen the general condition of the functioning of those kind, those type of economics. And, uh, and therefore, uh, that means we entered into a long tunnel, uh, which is a revolutionary process, uh, we, which will have, like any long term, and it's not the first one in history, far from it, 
any long-term evolutionary processes, ups and downs, uh, uh, upsurges and, uh, and setbacks, uh, uprisings, uh, backlashes, uh, and, and we got into that. Now, since then, the term Arab Spring uh, got, has taken a different meaning, which is just referring to the upheaval, the uprising. In that sense, I don't have a problem with the term, actually. So, so it was good to speak last year of a second Arab Spring, in the sense of a second wave, a second wave of revolutionary upsurges, uh, which started in uh, December, again, December uh, 18, this time, eight years later, um, and then in Sudan, uh, then spread to uh, Algeria uh, February. Uh, 2019, and then from there in, in October to Iraq, and then to Lebanon. So four countries got into a pricing mode uh, uh, that you have to add to the six countries that had entered into a pricing mode in uh, 2011, whatever happened after. Uh, that means that until now, we've had a total of 10 countries in the region that is close to half the, 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 the states of the region especially if you take the population on board, it's, that, that would get much more than half, uh, uh, that had uh, witnessed major uprisings. And, and that's still, I mean, that's, again, we are very far from the end of that. We are still in the early phase of this process. Uh, after decades, when people will look at that, and they, they, they will see it as this, and they will see that the years that those, uh, this first decade of the Arab, spring or whatever it's called of, of the, 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 um, the, the Arab revolutionary process uh, as, uh, as, as just the, the, the starting uh, phase of, of, of all that. And uh, so to get back now to Corona. Yeah, I, can we introduce the, what, how COVID begins to impact yeah, these dynamics? Please. Exactly. So once you understand that, and that's why it was important to, to explain this. Uh, you can see that this will be uh, very much affected, of course, by uh, the crisis. The, we have been, I mean, the region has been affected like other parts of the world, and one should say much less than other parts of the world until now, by the health uh, dimension, by the pandemic. Uh, the Middle East and North Africa are not uh, the most affected uh, parts of the world the rates of death and all that are very, very moderate compared to uh, Britain, which now has the highest in the world. Um, so uh, that is not where you will have the money. But when it comes to the economic impact, because you have two COVID-19 crises, one is the pandemic, that is one is medical, but the other is the economic. That one will, which will, which is, very, uh, which is very likely to last much longer than the, the medical one, but the, the, the health one, uh, that crisis uh, is going to affect, affect brutally this part of the world um, uh, uh, and more brutally than other parts of the world uh, for one reason, which is the addiction of this region to hydrocarbons, to oil and gas. As you know, as everybody knows, because it's been so much in the news, 
since uh, March, you've had a very, very sharp drop in, uh, the, the <clears throat> in oil prices. Uh, actually, they have been declining since uh, 2014, and they, they dropped very brutally uh, since, uh, since March. Um, and uh, the, the, the prospects are not uh, at all prospects of getting back uh, to high prices in any foreseeable, I mean, uh, future uh, now, because of the crisis, the economic crisis, because of the of the long term uh, effects of this crisis. For instance, when you think of uh, um, uh, uh, work uh, from from home, which has, will inevitably expand hugely after this. Uh, the how this affect transports, which will, uh, which won't get back anytime soon to the level of before the pandemic, the global transport, the air traffic, and all that. When you think of all that, you, you see a number of reasons why the demand for oil uh, won't get back to where it was uh, last year, which means that the depression of oil prices is a long term. Uh, uh, it has to be, this has to be taken for granted. And since so many of the economies of the region were either directly depending on oil exports or indirectly through the Gulf money, through the money coming from uh, rich oil exporters, essentially from the Gulf, uh, into their economies, various forms, whether private investment, state uh, funding or aid or whatever, uh, then you understand that the whole economy of the region is going to get even more depressed than uh, what, has, what uh, has been the case until now. And that means, and here we, we, we close the circle if you want, uh, since the roots of the explosion uh, of, uh, in 2011 were social economic in this uh, protracted uh, uh, slow motion uh, economies that that uh, that you had in the region, then this is going to get even worse than what it has been. That means massive unemployment, massive youth unemployed, but not only youth unemployed, all kinds of unemployment, a huge increase in poverty, uh, and all that. All the figures the, the, the will uh, will will go in the red. Will go. Uh, in, in the alarm uh, uh, section, and uh, and that's why you you can um, safely uh, bet on the fact that uh, 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 social turmoil, social and political turmoil, can will increase. It has been already very high since 2011. That is when you say long-term revolutionary process. That also meant that there was no way this part of the world would. Uh, uh, recover some kind of stability, hmm? uh, marks, as it had been doing three decades, more or less, before the explosion. Uh, that kind of stability is over. It finished in 2011, hmm? and we entered into a, a period of in, intense destabilization. Even where you had setbacks and all that, it's, it's a very precarious kind of, of, uh, of stabilization, like in, in CC's Egypt, for instance which can explode any time. 
Um, so, uh, so, so th this will just increase. Uh, this uh, instability will increase tremendously in the in the next phase, and and therefore, uh, the, I mean, the big question will be, as it has been from the start, the question of whether you have or not the emergence of uh, coalition of forces or whatever it is that can play the role of political leadership into steering the popular uh, anger and the popular protest uh, into real change, huh? real change at the political, social, and economic level. <clears throat> That's the big question. The only, or the most, let's say, let's put it that way, the most advanced experience in that regard <clears throat> is that of, uh, of Sudan. Anyone interested, they can find its open access now on Le Monde Diplomatique uh, my article uh, published uh, a few weeks ago, uh, actually at the beginning of this month, uh, three weeks ago on, on Sudan, the Sudanese revolution at the crossroads. It's open access as uh, my other articles, including on, on the, this uh, second Arab Spring, it's, it's called. Um, and uh, so that's an interesting experience, which is in a transitory precarious phase. Um, uh, but uh, aside from that, the, the, this question, this problem of the leadership is, uh, is, is there as a, as a big problem with no solution um, uh, on the horizon, whether in Algeria, whether in Lebanon, whether in Iraq, the three other countries, aside from Sudan, there are no uh, uh, leaderships emerging that could steer this huge popular potential and youth potential and women potential into uh, real change. But uh, perhaps, I mean, although all the indicators show that things, I mean, the International Monetary Fund came out with a report just last month saying that there was going to be uh, a 3.3% uh, uh, retreat economically, uh, that the MENA region would undergo a uh, uh, the worst economic recession in four decades. Um, but is there any potential, do you think, that uh, a crisis like the COVID crisis, particularly where the state of the Arab revolutions are, so to speak, uh, that it could actually freeze the process? Because particularly insofar as, even though we may see people, the situation worsening and deteriorating, on another level, there's there are certain issues uh, uh, around people being extremely scared that things are going to get much worse, in addition to the fact that you have collective action problems around how do you organize protests in a context of uh, where you're not even allowed to be very close with other people. And, and these are problems, of course, that, uh, that other social and political movements are challenged by. But uh, in a context like the Middle East, it's, uh, it's worth hearing what you have to say about that. Excuse me, no, I'm going to close the door too because the, the settlers in the neighborhood have just turned on some music. So, uh, mm. but please go ahead. <laughs> I'll be back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the impact of the, the, uh, the pandemic, the impact of the, the, the health issue, of course, uh, was there. And uh, it, uh, for, for instance, where it's most visible is that it ended the uh, weekly demonstrations in Algeria and created conditions which were uh, seized by the, uh, the government 
uh, in order to to uh, you know uh, arrest people and all that and try to really uh, repress the movement in a way that would prevent it from resuming once those conditions are more or less over. So there is an attempt in Algeria of intimidating people away from any uh, any attempt to resume the, the movement. Um, but again, the depth of the social economic crisis is, is such that uh, 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 not only state repression will not won't be enough to, to deter it, but not even the, the virus is enough to deter it. Just look at what you have. In, in Lebanon, they, they, I mean, okay, not the, the, the huge kind of uh, mobilization that you had in uh, October, November 2019, but still, uh, people are getting back to the streets. Same can be said about uh, Iraq, but even beyond the, the, the region where you have uh, sharp uh, um, consequences of neoliberalism, as in Chile, look, uh, or take Hong Kong, which is a different case. It's not directly social economic, although the, the, the background of that, of this discontent is also even in Hong Kong social economy. But I mean, what you get is, is people going back to the streets, whatever. They, 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 I mean, virus or no virus, when, when you reach conditions where, where you know, you, you can't uh, you can't survive economically, so uh, you're going to 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 let it out, and uh, that's what we'll we'll see. Okay, I'd like to sort of shift to an, uh, another theme that is consistent when we talk about analysis of the, uh, the Arab uprising, so to speak, which is the involvement of uh, external actors in the organic processes of these of these movements. Uh, Obviously, within each state context, there's a lot of a lot of political and organizational and institutional questions have been raised by these. But uh, something that hasn't helped, or perhaps perhaps we could talk about uh, their effect, ha has been the large impact of different sets of actors in these revolutionary processes. Whether these are trans-Arab interactions, largely Arab uh, Gulf states that are. That, and perhaps Egypt, which have become involved in uh, in some of these revolutionary theaters, or we of course have powerful regional actors, most particularly Iran and Turkey, who have played some significant roles. Perhaps also, to on a minor level, even Israel. Uh, and then we also have the larger dimension, which is the role of the big, bigger international players, such as the U.S., EU, and uh, Russia. So uh, I'd like to hear before we, because we're sort of running out of time, we would like to head to some questions. But uh, on these three different levels, if you could begin to speak to how the COVID crisis and the ensuing economic crisis will begin to impact uh, the ability to intervene of all these three sets of actors upon the dynamics that we described previously. Big question. Well, mm. <laughs> um. I mean, uh, I think that uh, um, so first, if you take the, the, the regional players, um, they, they aren't uh, at the same level, of course, economically. That is, uh, those Gulf states, uh, of course, they will be affected by the crisis. And we see that the, the, the Saudi kingdom itself has gone into 
uh, implementation of further austerity measures. They, they, there, there were already a few austerity measures from the previous years, but they, they have been increased. But uh, on the one hand, they, they still have uh, a lot of, uh, of, uh, of money, and they will prioritize uh, whatever they see as defense of their vital interests. And that, because uh, that, that's the, 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 the most important for them, that their survival as states and all that is at stake. Um, we can expect, I mean, it, it is more likely that a country like Iran, uh, which is in a much uh, more difficult economic situation, uh, will have difficulty continuing its kind of expansion. Um, beyond uh, its borders, uh, interventions in, in the region. Uh, but uh, here again, I mean, this, these uh, clashes, the struggle has become so, uh, so uh, intense that, uh, that uh, you, you can't uh, bet on economic rationality. You see what I mean? That is, it goes beyond economic rationality because you have here political, ideological, and all kinds of factors that are playing uh, a, key, a key role. Uh, the, the state of Israel is taking advantage of all that into, and of the existence of the presence of Donald Trump at the end of the United States into going further in the annexation of, uh, of uh, whatever land you have between the Jordan River and, uh, and the sea. Uh, uh, soon what will be left to the so-called Palestinian Authority will, will be, uh, I mean, left to claim a Palestinian state over will be uh, close to 15% of, of the, the land that you have between the river and the sea. So uh, that's, uh, that's here a state that is taking advantage of all these conditions, okay, the, the state of Israel. Um, as for uh, Russia, United States and all that. I mean, first, the United States, as, as you know, the, 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 the politics of the United States is also, I mean, depends on uh, uh, who is at the helm. You have had a, a clear shift with Donald Trump in, uh, in some uh, of uh, the stances in foreign policies, uh, depending on if he is re-elected or you have Joe Biden or whatever. Uh, things may, uh, may, may change, um, but uh, um, the, uh, the country that might be more affected than the United States is, uh, is China, in that sense, uh, not as a political player, but uh, as an economic player, especially with the huge increase of uh, debt globally a big part of which is, is now owned by, uh, by China as the creditor state, uh, this will, will have severe economic implications. So how this affects uh, the, the region, it's really difficult to tell. If you look at what's happening, despite this coronavirus crisis and all that, uh, you, had, you haven't had any um, uh, relent or any uh, uh, slow down or anything of, of uh, the ongoing uh, fights, you know, uh, whether in Syria, in the Idlib region and all that, or even more so in Libya, uh, you, you have increased intervention. 
Turkey increased its intervention in Libya. Russia increased intervention in Libya. The, the, the two are fighting each another by, by proxies and all that. So, uh, the, the, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't think there's anything to expect from, from that point of view. Huh? That, uh, that, uh, uh, um, that uh, you, you will have uh, less uh, foreign interventions or whatever of the kind in the region. Nothing indicates that uh, this might happen. Oh, your... Uh... Even with the drastic uh, need to spend uh, and divert spending into healthcare costs and uh, a, a more isolationist tendency that seems to be brewing that you see in the US or in EU at least. I mean, you don't see these pulling back. I mean, for instance, I mean, the, the, the uprisings have met, made huge, uh, have had huge implications on and created huge refugee populations. The whole Palestinian economy, the, the, the Syrians, the Lebanese, the Jordanians, this is, uh, this is the region that is at this stage hugely dependent upon aid and provision that is coming from Western donors. Uh, and we sense not only a sort of uh, a hunkering down and a need to sort of invest locally in these countries, but also uh, keep the, the immigrant and a xenophobia that's being built and, and a bit more of an isolationism. Uh, do you see uh, that, that being able to, that changing the dynamics or are th these really simply like much larger geopolitical factors that their whole well-being of these states is dependent upon whether the people like it or not uh, not uh, not everybody can afford isolations mm. uh, the united states is a special case it's a huge economy it's a huge country it has huge resources and it has very little it doesn't depend on exports. I mean, the degree of dependence of the US economy on exports is very limited. Um, so it can afford to play it isolationist, a la Trump, right? China, for instance, can't play that game because, or, or Germany for that matter. Uh, uh, these are export dependent countries. So, uh, uh, they, and, and the whole of Europe is in the, the same boat in that regard. Um, so now, the United States has been on this isolationist kind of, of, uh, of road under Trump over the, the last few years. Uh, what does it mean? It doesn't mean uh, uh, full isolationism in the sense of withdrawal from uh, every entanglement abroad. It's just withdrawal from where there are no vital interests for the United States. That's basically. Uh, maybe the most symbolic of all that is what happened in Syria. You know? Donald Trump redeployed the troops from fighting alongside the Kurds, whom they used to, 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 uh, to defeat uh, ISIS, into uh, concentrating on the oil fields of, of, of Syria. So, I mean, this is so symbolic. It means our troops will be where we have interest, where it is interesting for us to be, where it pays, right? So, of course, it pays for the United States to be in the Gulf countries. 
these countries pay a lot. Uh, they, they contribute to funding the, the, the US uh, federal budget. They contribute to, to uh, 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 pouring uh, fuel into the, the, uh, the, the engine of the, the US economy and all that. And uh, th that's a very important price. Um, uh, the, the clash with, with Iran will, will carry on because what is at stake is this area of major interest. Um, Syria, the United States is not that interested. Uh, Libya, you see very little interest, except now that uh, Russia is, uh, is uh, stepping up its intervention. Uh, you, what you may see is more U.S. support to Turkey, actually. Uh, in this in this regard, uh, but uh, ultimately the logic is interests, mm -hmm. and not any kind of purely ideological isolationism. It's just a matter of not being uh, well. We don't want to be the, the global cop and uh, spend money for the rest of the world where we don't have an interest at stake. So we'll have troops where it's interesting for us. Thank you. Well, we're, uh, we're almost out of time. Well, not quite, but uh, we'd like to, I'd like to invite uh, audience members to send in their questions uh, and uh, we'll be happy to raise them to uh, Professor Ashkar. We have two questions right now up there that I'll throw out to you, Professor Ashkar. The first one is from Farah Baba, who writes, in the case of Lebanon, a lot of protesters and local leadership in the regions actually consider that the absence of a national revolutionary leadership was behind the success of keeping the momentum of protests going on for almost seven months now. In your opinion, how do you think the ongoing socioeconomic crisis could change this po political culture of rejecting political leadership in attempt to reach the real change that you mentioned? Yeah, that's a good, uh, good, uh, good remark, and thank you for that. Uh, well, it's double-edged, that is. Uh, the, the lack of a leading body um, uh, can be seen as having been a facilitated circumstance for the, uh, the uprising, the October uprising, the 17th of October uprising, as it's called in, uh, in, in Lebanon. Uh, why so? Precisely because of the weakness of political organizations representing the interests of the, the population and the, 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 the masses that were protesting, uh, any attempt at uh, uh, you know, setting up some kind of leadership would have faced a lot of problems um, and would have uh, been uh, an easy prey for the uh, classical tool through which the ruling class in Lebanon tried to always diffuses social struggles, which is sectarianism, you know? So you would get into who is represented and why, and, and why those, these guys or not uh, these people, or why, uh, you know, every kind of, uh, of issues will, will get into the picture. So the fact of being a kind of, of leaderless movement, uh, allowed it to function, but that was because there was no leadership that had any legitimacy or the, 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 the degree of legitimacy that would have been needed to be a consensual leadership. You had one in Sudan. You, don't, you have no consensual leadership in the other countries, Iraq, Lebanon, and Algeria. Take Algeria, 
where you don't have a sectarianism or whatever. Even in Algeria, there, I mean, because of the weakness of all political organizations that you have, uh, you have this, this popular movement, very grassroots, very horizontal, and, and it's uh, very networking. But uh, that was also the expression of the lack of, 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 of uh, political organizations and groups that would be able to, to play the role of, uh, of uh, uh, legitimate leadership. That is a, le a leadership that is consensually recognized by the movement, by the popular movement. That's, so that's why I said it's double-edged. It, it, it allows the movement to, to, uh, to carry on because it, it doesn't get into these troubles of who's leading and who's pretending to lead and all that. But on the other hand, this absence of leadership is a huge weakness. And I would say the movement of Lebanon paid the price already. Uh, it's not accurate to say that it has been uh, there for seven months. It, it went down very sharply already uh, by the, the beginning of this year, even before this corona uh, virus crisis. Uh, there was a, a real, uh, and with the government the, of Hassan Diab and all that, the, the, the whole movement subsided, the, the declined, uh, and uh, it hasn't recuperated the kind of uh, impetus that it had uh, in uh, last uh, autumn. Um, so no, uh, all in all, definitely the, the issue is, is really this, uh, this big problem of, uh, of the emergence of leaderships, which don't need to be um, political parties. I mean, <clears throat> it, it can very well be in the form of, of what played the role or the key role in, in leading the Sudanese uh, uprising, uh, which is the Sudanese Professional Association, which is an association of unions, professional unions, but then uh, even uh, you know, teachers' unions, workers' unions, and uh, I mean, even such leaderships, I mean, whatever can, can, can uh, really uh, organize and speak in the name of the popular movement and whatever can have the legitimacy to speak in the name. And then you can have results. But again, when you, you take Algeria, you take Lebanon, uh, aside from a few general slogans, uh, the demonstrators uh, know much more what they don't want than what they want. And of course, the lack of program, the lack of, of clear demands is a weakness. Well, that's fascinating. I, I wonder, I mean, I, I, I hear what you say, and to some extent, I also, uh, from my knowledge of the Tunisian experience, recognize that the Tunisian Confederation of Unions played, to some extent, a, a stabilizing force as being able to help in that revolutionary transition. But in a context like Lebanon, where you have, now I'm not an expert on Lebanon, and that's why I'm asking the question to you, uh, structurally, economic, uh, uh, benefits uh, uh, are, are provided to some extent as a as part and parcel of that sectarian system so uh, how where uh, how easy is it to form cross-class based interests in a context where whole economic sectors are seen as privy to a certain sectarian stream no no you, you have a, a huge ground for uh, cross-class and cross-sectarian, uh, cross-class and cross-sectarian movement. Cross-class in the sense of uh, whole sections of the middle class joining the, the, the uh, 
working class, the, the, the poorer classes, the unemployed and all that, because actually the very idea of middle class, uh, I mean, the very, the, 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 what, what you could call middle class in Lebanon has uh, shrunk uh, tremendously with the, the ongoing crisis. Now, don't forget that Lebanon went into a very deep economic crisis since uh, last uh, autumn, it, it exploded in the autumn and it has reached uh, huge uh, dimensions for a little country like, like Lebanon with a huge unemployment, with a huge uh, you know, uh, collapse in the purchasing power of people and uh, even uh, uh, full poverty, I mean, huge. So the, the, the implications has been, have been, have been uh, enormous, have been enormous. Uh, um, and so this affects uh, a range of social layers and affects all sects, people from all sects. And whatever uh, kind of uh, side benefits you could have through the sectarian system in the past, they have eroded. The, the, I mean, all this has collapsed. The, 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 the Lebanese currency is, uh, is uh, you know, has uh, uh, collapsed, uh, you know, in the, in the way that you see in those countries where, where you have those big economic crises like, uh, like you have now in Lebanon. So, um, so the, the ground is there, but the issue is uh, the, the, the lack of, uh, of, uh, of forces able to coalesce all that into a political force. You know? That's the point. You have the ground, but you don't have those who can build on it. You don't have builders, if you want. Okay. <laughs> the ground is there, but you don't have builders. Um, that's uh, the, the, the accumulation of failures over long periods. Uh, that's the role of sectarianism in affecting politics in Lebanon. That's the role of sectarian uh, regional allegiances. Uh, you know, uh, also Iran, Syria, Saudi Kingdom, blah, blah, blah. So all this has weakened a lot uh, the, the political scene in Lebanon and hence this uh, absence of uh, of forces having any kind of legitimacy to represent the people. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you for that answer. Uh, we'll take one more question. Also, uh, maybe to, if anybody else has questions, we might have an opportunity to get in yet a second one. But uh, I'll read the question that's come in from Yazid Zada. Uh, he says, listening to the definition of neoliberalism that you gave on the one hand and what has happened since the outbreak of COVID-19 on the other, uh, can one can notice that the state is taking more space? Public services such as health are receiving state financial support. Private side sectors are more or less nationalized. Take the British Railway or the German air company Lufthansa. How do you see the strong return of the state in light of how you've defined neoliberalism? How do you see this happening in oil-dependent countries like Saudi Arabia, which has minimized its social coverage expenses and raised VAT? Um, right. Um... I don't know if uh, the person who asked the question attended our uh, exchange from the beginning because I addressed at least the first part of, of the question uh, in explaining that uh, this uh, massive injection of state funds uh, in the economies uh, is seen by the neoliberal governments as an exceptional measure for an exceptional time. Uh, it's not seen as a, a change of policy and a shift uh, 
in, in, the, uh, in economic logics and economic policies. No, they see it really uh, uh, as uh, an, uh, an, I mean, a situation of emergency uh, 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 requiring this injection of funds to, to prevent the, the general collapse of the economy and social chaos, as we said at the beginning, but uh, uh, they uh, will revert to their kind of, uh, of uh, policies later on. And one key issue will be who will pay for that. And uh, uh, as I said, uh, they, they won't be inclined to go back to the very high uh, taxation rates that you had in the 60s in those uh, um, years of, uh, of, uh, of global, I mean, for of economic boom in, in Western countries, you had very, very high uh, marginal taxation rates. Uh, they won't go back to that. They, they will, uh, on the contrary, try to uh, freeze wages, uh, reduce wages, uh, reduce benefits and all that in the name of austerity and debt. And we have to, to pay back and explaining, well, you know, that was from God and uh, this, uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, is not our fault, so we are all on the same boat and we have to pay for it. And of course, the logic is completely flawed because we are not on the same boat. Uh, they bear, uh, they, 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 they have the, 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 the they, are, they are those who are responsible for the high cost of the, 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 the crisis, wherever it is, like take uh, this country where, where I, I am, the United Kingdom, which is now the record in the world in the, the rate of death. Uh, it's a total disaster, but that has been uh, one of the most uh, rabid neoliberal governments in the world, uh, um, uh, which went uh, further than uh, any other or most other Euro I mean, at least Western European governments in, 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 that, uh, in that respect. Uh, it's getting close to the, what you have in the United States. Uh, I mean, uh, it's the closest to what you have in the United States. And, uh, and, uh, and, and this went along with a huge increase in social inequality, with a huge uh, fortunes accumulated at the top, and, and uh, de facto in, uh, you know, impoverishment of, uh, at, the, at the grassroots. So, so that's, that's the point. Now, <clears throat> when, uh, uh, what about the Saudi kingdom uh, in, that, uh, uh, in that regard? Um, the, I mean, the, 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 the state in the Saudi kingdom has always been a huge uh, actor in the economy for, for an obvious reason, because the, 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 by far the, 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 big, the largest chunk of the economy is oil and gas, which is state-owned. And yet you had this attempt at privatizing this part partially by uh, the crown prince uh, with the privatization, the partial privatization of, uh, of, uh, of Aramco. And uh, we've seen the lack of appetite uh, of, uh, of, of private uh, money to go there. I mean, you would think on the face of it, wow, that's uh, excellent investment opportunity. But uh, the kind of prices they wanted and the lack of confidence and that's a key problem for the whole region, which explains and which I uh, very much emphasize as a, the key to understanding this very low, and very slow kind of economic development that you had and why neoliberalism, uh, even if it 
could function somewhere, it definitely can't function in this part of the world. It is because private capital won't go into any kind of major investments, uh, long-term investments in this part of the world because it doesn't have confidence in the existing political, legal, and other conditions. And, uh, and, and you have a good illustration of it in the Saudi Kingdom where, where they had to force <laughs> people to, to, uh, to acquire those uh, shares. Uh, um, um, so yeah, this, this, uh, um, these conditions will only increase and this uh, uh, reluctance of private money to go into any kind of real developmental, uh, let alone the, the Aramco kind of thing, but I'm speaking here of real developmental uh, investment, uh, this will be even less than the already extremely low uh, level at which it was. Well, thank you, Gilbert. We're basically at time and I can hear your voices uh, beginning to give out so I don't, I don't want to test you any further. But thank you so much for the insight and analysis that you've been able to provide for us tonight and for our audience. Uh, I'd like to welcome audience members to be able to check out uh, our website, www.cbrl.ac.uk, where uh, regular discussions of this nature, as well as other activities of CBRL will be conducted. And you can sign up there to be a member or see what we're doing to check us out. Uh, other than that, uh, I'd like to just thank our audience and our guest for uh, all the insight he's been able to provide. Uh, you can find him at uh, SOAS, uh, where you can read more about some of his books. He's also had some very important articles that have recently come out in Jacobin, as well as New Politics, providing some of this analysis in uh, written format. So thank you today for your time, and uh, everybody please stay safe and uh, rest at home, stay socially distant, and thank you for your time today. All the best. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you all. Bye-bye.